so let's start. So I want to open with a quick question. And I don't know if people realize in the early days when you guys started um, the firm, Andreessen Horowitz, it was not called Andreessen Horowitz. It was called BFD. So I thought the room would love to hear. <laughs> I know what it means, but I thought it'd be really cool to warm up the room to share with them what it means, why you guys called it BFD, and uh, like how did that work out in, in the end? Uh, do you want me to take that one, Mark? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, so uh, it, it's funny because, um, you know, we referred to it as BFD and uh, actually as the firm started to grow, people at the firm <laughs> thought it meant um, big effing deal, which it did not. It meant bedrock fire department. <laughs> and <laughs> the reason it was called the bedrock fire department is there was an episode of the Flintstones where uh, uh, Barney says, you know, Fred, we should join the Joe Rockhead's volunteer fire department. And Fred's like, wait, we don't know anything about putting out fires. And Barney's like, what are you talking about? There's no fires in bedrock. Everything's made of stone. This is just a way to get out of the house and go bowling and drink beer and stuff. And so we thought that was an appropriate name because Mark and I were in the house all day. We are like, we need some, the bedrock fire department to to get us out of the house. So that's where the name came from. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was actually a dividend of, of my rap career because we had sampled that episode on uh, one of the rap songs called The Bedrock. So <laughs> anyway. That's awesome. Oh, um, on with the more serious stuff. All right. So I think today we're doing it differently, right? So um, I think uh, today I really want to ask Ben, uh, Mark, and Mike, uh, about uh, how they started A16Z, what they're doing, lessons, learning, life, partnership, and all those things, and the future. Um, so I'd like to start actually with the, um, a question on CAA. So Mike started CAA in 1975. And I've heard that when you guys started A16Z, it actually was an inspiration for you, that there was a lot of similarities between how CAA was formed, org chart, how they did things, how they ran it, how they managed it with A16Z. I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, maybe Ben, if you want to go, or Mike. Well, well I can go ahead, Ben. You take. I could give. Off. Why don't I give Mike the lead in, and and uh, you know why why we went to him. Um, so you know, Mark and I uh, kind of had an idea of what we wanted to do as a venture capital firm, but one thing. We knew, and I, and I give kind of most credit to Mark because he did a, just a great job of studying the history of venture capital. But the problem um, that we had to solve was if you looked at kind of venture capital um, in 2009 when we started the firm, or really 2008 when we were looking at it, the top firms had been the top firms for a very, very long time, um, you know, decades. And... <clears throat> There was a good reason for that um, because basically people selected a venture capital firm based on uh, success. So as an entrepreneur, you want a lot of things, but the number one thing you want, you're at a very high anxiety point and you want success. Like how can <laughs> I guarantee my own success? And so they were looking for the successful firms and there was no way a new firm without a track record could 
you know, kind of compete with a firm like, say, Sequoia, who had funded, you know, Apple and Cisco and uh, Google and all these great companies. So we needed kind of a <laughs> a wedge into that. And um, it was interesting because we knew, because, you know, we had known Michael for many years because he was on uh, our board at LoudCloud and Opsware. Um, we knew that CAA had kind of done the same thing in the talent business where there were these firms that had been around since the vaudeville days and had all the top actors and actresses. So if you were a top actor, or top director or what have you, you know, you would go to the William Morris agency and you would, you know, sign up. Of course you would, because that's where, you know, the actresses that you really admired uh, were kind of agented by. And so somehow Michael figured out a way to start a new talent agency in 1975 and take it to the top of the industry over the next 15 years. And we thought, wow, that's probably a good model for us. So that's when we went to Michael. And I'll pass it to Michael there. <laughs> thanks, Ben. I, I, first of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm really honored to be part of this discussion, particularly with such good friends on the line and uh, two guys that have had the most extraordinary influence on my life, uh, personally and professionally. Uh, I, I think it goes back to when uh, Mark and Ben, uh, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, cons considered me to come on the board of LoudCloud. This was 99, 2000 in that area. And it was the beginning of a journey for me and a very steep learning curve. And we used to talk a lot about different kinds of businesses. And the one thing about Mark and Ben is they have an insatiable appetite for information, ideas, and just exchanging uh, thoughts about just about every subject imaginable. And Clearly, one thing about the business I spent most of my professional career in, the entertainment business, it's an easy subject to talk about because A, everybody has an opinion, B, everybody's a consumer of all aspects of it, and C, the uh, kind of gossip side of it's really interesting. But <laughs> Mark, Mark and Ben were particularly interested in the fundamentals of the business and the dynamics of it and things that only individuals who grew up in the Valley would be interested in, things that people in the entertainment business don't think about. Uh, when we started CAA, we had to do something different. We had no choice. There were several hundred ensconced, as ben, ben said, talent agencies. They controlled, probably about 10 of them controlled probably 80% of the talent. Talent went to places that they were comfortable. They could call their lawyer or their business manager or a publicist and get a recommendation of an existing company where people basically would feed each other clients. It was a very incestuous, still is, business. The thesis that we came up with was very simple. We had to differentiate. We had to come up with something that would break the paradigm of the older agencies that have been around forever. So we decided to come up with this concept of all of our executives 
being partners of the firm and all of our executives knowing about all of our clients and basically to provide services that other agencies didn't provide. So to simplify this, agents basically took what were called phone orders. If there was a part for an actor, an actress, a director, a writer, or a gig for a musician, it was an incoming call to the agent. They just sat and frankly clipped coupons. We decided to reverse that and that we would package and put together product for our clientele. And we would aggressively look for opportunities by putting them together with each other and with other pieces of talent and not wait for the phone to ring. So all these stories were constantly discussed with Mark and Ben just because they were interested. And when I remember calling Mark, I doubt that you'll remember this, Mark, but I called when you and Ben were angel investing before I even knew you were thinking about doing a, a firm. I was begging to get involved in your angel investing. And then lo and behold, you guys decided to do what you've done. And, and there was a discussion that ensued about how to make it different. And it was exactly the same playbook that was suggested for the simple reason that A, they knew about it, B, the world of venture capital was a series of ensconced, if you will, just like agents were, and they had to come out of the box with something very different and with something to offer that no one else could. And lo and behold, they did it. And I couldn't, I don't think it could have been executed any better. And I think that the firm itself very quickly established itself as something that was different, that was very dedicated to entrepreneurs. And not that other firms aren't, but that offered a multiplicity of services that other firms never thought about offering or did in a singular basis. I'm talking about the, the more ensconced traditional VC firms. So I don't know if that helps get the conversation going, Ali, but that's how I look at it. That's super fascinating. I, I think that's actually perfect segue. Um, so it was modeled after CAA, how it disrupted an existing industry that had existed for a long time. Uh, but how do you do that then? Like, how do you, and you know, you probably have to figure out some strengths that you have that the existing established VCs didn't have, that this is their weakness. So you can apply your strength to their weakness. What were those strategies? How did you guys disrupt them? And how did you figure out how to do that? And how, how did it go? Mark, do you want to take it? Do you want me to start? No, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting because there were there were a lot of different aspects to it. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of the core thing um, we took from Michael. So there, there, there were kind of investing strategies and then there were kind of um, value proposition strategies were kind of the, the two categories of things. And we had, we had a few, many observations. Mark probably had, you know, 10 times the number of observations that I did about the industry, but, you know, we had lots of them and we were trying to figure out which ones to pursue. But, you know, on the investing strategy side, you know, we had come from, angel investing. And at that time, VCs had just kind of completely ignored um, that part of the market. And we thought, you know, we knew that market 
um, and we could have that as a component of the firm. So that was, you know, one of the things. Another thing, you know, that we thought right out of the gates is, you know, we would be kind of from investing in standpoint, multi-stage. So we had invest, investing ideas that were separate from the value proposition, but the value proposition um, kind of mapped exactly on to how Michael had thought about it in that <clears throat> the thing that we had experienced um, both at Netscape and at uh, Loud Cloud and Opsware was that VCs were really best at uh, kind of replacing the founder inventor as CEO um, with a professional. They were great at this. I mean, these guys had, you know, the most amazing kind of roster of professional CEOs that they could roll into a company and kind of take the thing over and run with it. And, you know, we knew from being entrepreneurs, and it, actually one of my favorite stories about this is, uh, you know, at the end of, Opsware, you know, we had gone through all kinds of crazy stuff, um, you know, and we, you know, ended up selling it for like a billion, uh, a billion six to Hewlett Packard. But I got a call from a private equity firm, uh, and the private equity firm said to me, "Ben, we want to hire you into our firm." <laughs> and like on the first phone call, like <laughs> literally on a phone call, and I was like, "You've never even met me. Like, how, how could you say such a thing?" And they said, well, like we specialized in turnarounds and we think the greatest tech turnaround of the last decade was uh, loud cloud to Opsware. And I said, well, you are aware that I was the one who fucked it up in the first place, aren't you? <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those things. That, and right at that moment, I realized there's no way any professional could have come in and fix that company because you would have had to know everything that was wrong with it, all the mistakes we had made to act fast enough to do it. So you really have a huge advantage as the founder in being able to do this. And Mark and I talked about this a lot, but you know, if you go back through the history of technology companies, all the, or not all, but almost all the greatest technology companies were run by their founders for, for a very long time. So if you go back to kind of Thomas Watson at IBM or Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett at Hewlett Packard or Bill Gates at Microsoft or Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Steve Jobs at Apple, you name it. Then we take Steve Jobs out of Apple, they disintegrate and you bring them back and they become the most valuable company in the world. And, and we really thought there was a reason for this. And so we thought our differentiation would be, we'd be the best place for an inventor um, to run his or her own company for a long time and that would, you know, off of that position, we then said, okay, can we apply Michael's model? And we absolutely could, because the thing that CAA did that none of the other agencies could match is they built a franchise and that franchise was a network. And so if you think about a normal talent agency, you've got agents and each agent has a network, but those networks don't overlap, intersect. It's not the union of those networks you get. You get your guys network. And that was exactly what you got with the venture capital firm. You get the partners network. And we thought, well, what if the entire firm we built into a network? And yeah. we did it by exactly the way Michael did is Mark, Mark didn't take any salary. We took all the fee money and we built this, what you know Michael referred to as the franchise. You know We call it the platform. Um, but it's essentially a network 
where we could give an inventor a network that was as powerful as Bob Iger's network day one, like right out of the gates, you could call any customer, any executive, anybody in the capital networks, anybody in Washington, D.C., like right off the bat, you pick up the phone, you get them um, through our platform. That was the concept. So we kind of took this burden where, you know, founders never feel like they have the network of the professional CEOs. And now founders could feel that. And then the second kind of part of the differentiation that we built in was that, you know, the general partners, you know, Mark and I had built companies, um, like actually built companies. So we knew what it meant to build a company. We knew what it meant to be a CEO. And so, you know, we said, look, we're going to offer that, that knowledge, that know-how, and to prove it, like, we'll write about it. And, you know, Mark had this great blog, and then I started a blog, um, and then, you know, that eventually turned into the book. And so that that kind of became how we differentiated uh, as a firm in the early days. That's awesome. Uh, and, you know, what I found as a founder, frankly speaking, was that you could help us so much with the recruiting, with marketing, with sales. You had all these experts. And I felt like one of the advantages you guys had was that you had actually run a company. So you know how to run a marketing department, how to run a sales department. It seemed the VCs of their time, they were really good at making investments and picking good companies to invest in. And then they went off on a good reputation to get other good investments. But they actually didn't know how you necessarily do recruiting or hiring or marketing or sales. How important did that end up being in, in the strategy? Yeah, yeah, so it, I, I, oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, just on that. Uh, so yeah, so that was part of the historical study. That was part of what actually gave us confidence to start the firm. So, hmm. so, so you're exactly right. Like, the conventional wisdom in 2009 was very strongly that like basically there's a big difference between operators and investors. And in fact, if, if you ask most of the top VCs in 2009, it's like, you know, do the, do, are the best VCs former operators? The general answer that they would give you to that is no. Um, and the, the general explanation for that is because basically the, the theory is basically like it, investing requires a level of sort of clinical analysis and sort of emotional distancing. And operators tend to kind of get too inter intertwined with their companies and too emotionally entangled and, you know, often end up you know, wanting to run them. And so there's just this like they're, they're basically just these two different disciplines. And, you know, that was an interesting theory. But <laughs> when we went back and looked at the history, there was a problem with the theory. Uh, which is almost all of the top venture firms of that period, as Ben said, were derivatives of you know successors or derivatives or just later generations of venture firms that had been founded in the 60s and 70s, right? And so uh, you know Sequoia was founded in the, in the early 70s, Kleiner Perkins was in the early 70s, you know Greylock was in the 60s, um, you know Excel was a sort of a, a late bloomer. They were founded in the 80s, um, and actually, if you go back and you look at the history of those firms, they were all started by operators. Right. And so, you know, the founders of Sequoia were not professional investors. They were, you know, Don Valentine and Pierre Lamond, who were two of the legendary, you know, semiconductor executives at the time. Uh, you know, Kleiner Perkins was, uh, you know, Tom Perkins, who'd been a legendary, you know, HP general manager, Gene Kleiner, who'd been a member of the Traderous Eight, you know, the original kind of Fairchild Intel team, uh, you know, with Bob Noyce. And so, like, and the Greylock guys were former operators. And so it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, these, these existing firms were actually started by operators who, like, made them successful for their first 20 years and then basically handed them off. 
um, to side of the, you know, kind of the more stereotypical professional investor. And so we, we said, okay, you know, this is actually, this is actually not a new theory. Like what Ben just described is not a new theory. That's actually back to the future. Like it's, it's actually kind of how these, how, how these firms actually should be, should be founded and how they should be constructed uh, around that ethos. And, and it just turns out, you know, at least in our experience, it just turns out that, you know, to your point, like the, the knowledge and experience of actually having done it is just so overwhelmingly helpful, um, you know, as compared to, you know, basically just observing it from the outside. That's super fascinating. So kind of moving on. So that's how you guys started the firm. Um, but then what I find fascinating is, okay, so you, I think your first round was a $300 million round, uh, yep. you know, the first time. But then you immediately turn around and raise another billion dollars. And then before anyone knows it, you turn around and now raise a growth fund before anyone had a growth fund. And then you had a biotech fund. You had a crypto fund. Uh, I remember this call in January 2020 from Ben. And Ben and I are just shooting the shit. And I'm telling him, you know, this and then. In January 2020, Ben tells me, well, I don't know, maybe this COVID thing in China will be really bad for us. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, I can't get the Albert sneakers over here. That might be a real thing. And I was like, wow, what is Ben talking about? This is, this is nothing. There's like some tiny virus somewhere. So you guys were kind of prescient with all this stuff. And from what I hear, actually, there's a picture of JP Morgan in your office, uh, Mark. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, what's your vision for the firm? Where are you guys going to take it? Is it... You know, I mean, you guys are still working your butts off. What's your vision for what this will become? And does that have anything to do with kind of the sort of JP Morgans and the big sort of banking institutions we had back in the day? Is that what you're kind of aiming at in the future? Well, let me uh, kind of start and I'll pass to Mark because I, I think he deserves a little more credit than I do for some of the prescience, although, you know, we we work as a team, but I, I think he identified some of these things first, for sure, for sure, COVID. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, early on, um, one of the things that we knew um, from building companies, which, and I think not enough people realize this, not enough, not enough entrepreneurs realize this, is it's just as hard to build a small, mediocre venture capital firm or company as it is to build like a world dominating behemoth. Like it's the same work. You've worked your ass off regardless. And so you're better off <laughs> going for the gold. I mean, like you're going to put in the time, you might as well, you know, go for the outcome. And Mark had this thing he said uh, kind of really early on when we were raising fund one, which is look in fundraising, and in venture capital, strength leads to strength. So, you know, <laughs> we go out, we get the $300 million, we do a show of power, and then we go right back out and we get the next money. And we just keep getting stronger because strength is what wins in venture capital. You know, the strongest firm is who everybody wants to work with. So we just have to keep building strength. And so we've always kind of had it that, we were going to, you know, we wanted to be the most important venture capital firm. We never at any point in the firm were like, okay, if we just get to be one of the top 10 or one of the top five or one of the top, like that never was in the vocabulary. It was always, we have to build the best firm. And what does that mean? And that's kind of what uh, kind of drove all the evolution um, from, okay, not just, you know, what does the firm need to look like? But what are the technologies of the next 10 years? Because you know, one of the things we always worried about 
is like in the first 10 years, we rode cloud, we rode mobile, um, we <laughs> rode uh, social, but those things weren't going to last forever. And so what was the next decade going to be? Um, and, you know, and that led to crypto and bio and some of the newer stuff that we're doing. Um, and, and it was really interesting because that actually did end up being an advantage against our peers and that we were the kind of ahead of them on both, on both of those. So that, that attitude and that idea really worked. But Mark, maybe you might want to talk about kind of why we started with JP Morgan um, and then what does that mean going forward? Yeah, I'm yeah, curious, so like long term, Mark. Better, you know, what can this? How big is this going to be? What's kind of where are you guys, you know, setting your sights at? Yeah. So actually, I have a, let me ask a question to Michael on that on that previous topic, and then because this goes to a very important strategy uh, thing that really you know worked out well for us. So let me actually ask Michael a question, and then Ali, I'll come back come back to your 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 yeah. long term your long term question. So, so Michael, you, you may recall, I'll try not to leave the witness too much, but you might recall a question I asked you many years ago that actually kind of fed our strategy, you know, the, the strategy that Ben just described, which was, you know, before, I think, let's see, CAA ended up with a higher percentage market share um, in the sort of most important categories of the agency business. So, you know, the, the top actors and actresses, the top screenwriters, the top directors just ended up like structurally with like a higher market share um, than the firms that, that came before it when the, the market was more fragmented. And I, I, if I recall correctly, I asked you one time, I was like, look, like, here's what I don't understand, which is like, if there's an agency that already has like a whole bunch of like, you know, leading men actors, like for like, you know, whatever romantic comedies or already has a whole bunch of action stars or already has a whole bunch of the A-list directors, you know, if, if I'm an actor or a director and I'm competing with all those other guys, you know, for those same jobs, like, don't I need to be at a different agency? Because, you know, how can, how can you basically represent too many people in the same category? Um, and I, I, maybe you could expand on kind of how that, how you saw that actually play out in practice, because that, that directly translated into, into how we think about things. Right. Well, uh, thank you for the question. I, I, it's, it's very complex to answer. And on the other hand, it's quite simple. The thesis that we had was that everyone in the company would pull together as opposed to how other agents worked, where they worked singularly for their client. So they had one client, had one agent. Our idea was that the clients had all the agents working for them and cut the competitive environment also by sharing revenue divided up amongst everyone if we had a great year, everyone benefited. If we didn't, everyone got had to contribute. And what we did is made an environment that actors that normally competed would be better off under one roof. So for example, we signed, there were three actors that were wildly competitive with each other. Bob De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, and Al Pacino. They all could play the same roles. They all had different agents. We basically decided that we would go after people that were competitive with each other on the theory that we would make sure they each knew what the other was doing and we'd lay all the cards on the table because our internal partners didn't fight with each other and didn't look to one-up each other. So we signed each one, one at a time, and proved to them by putting them together. So we put them together in different films, De Niro and Hoffman in, in a film. We put 
De, De Niro and Pacino together. We put these individuals who normally would have had one agent into packaged product that we put together where everyone was pulling for the same end result. And frankly, in under my watch, I was very fortunate, but we lost very few clients. And frankly, we never lost a client ever because of a competitive problem. Everything was laid out in front of them. They knew what each other were doing. They realized it was better that everything be under one roof. And then to put a, uh, uh, to underline this point, we were all about representing everyone, which is something that you and I talked about early on. Is it possible? Is it something that's good for the talent? Is it good to have that kind of leverage? And frankly, what we managed to do was represent almost everyone. At one point, we had 46 of the top 50 grossing filmmakers in the world. And most of the working talent in front of the screen and the reason that we were able to do this is it gave us the ability to put them together, to make product that they could do together, and then to have leverage against the distributors who finance these films. And the goal was basically monopoly. And no one had ever thought about that before. Everyone had this point of view that no one could represent everyone. Our point of view was we can represent everybody and it's better for the clients if they're in our walled garden than outside it looking in. Yeah, and That's so amazing. Each, <laughs> and so right, the, the point, the point, the point right is um, it's it's better for each client, right, to 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 be working with the agency that has the most power. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, because if a, if you know our job was not to run the studios, our job was to get product made. So many, many films, as the three of us have discussed, that we did, and we did over 300 of them, but films like Ghostbusters or Jurassic Park, Gandhi, Stripes, Meatballs, um, I could just go right down the list, Casino, um, you know, uh, Goodfellows. These movies were pieced together, heat, with our clients, 100% our clients, you know, Rain Man, 100% our clients, Tootsie, 100% our clients. But none of them were developed by studios. They were developed internally by what we called an engine. So if Dustin Hoffman wanted to play a woman and try to do a love story based on the idea that became Tootsie, he was the motor, the engine that drove the product. But we didn't have a studio. We didn't have financing. Everybody contributed, including the clients. So basically, Mark, all of the clients benefit. And we got the, the main reason, aside from getting the creative product, was that we were then able to have all the leverage to make deals. So all of these packages that we did, our clients were getting the most percentage of the gross receipts in the history of the business, in the history of the business. And if you were a CAA client at that time, you were brought up to the levels of other CAA clients. And the clients didn't care what anyone else got as long as they got what they thought was the best. 
So we just levered it up in every direction. Yeah, and so, so Ali, Ali, to your yeah. question, um, yeah. So basically, it's like you know, they, look, there are big differences, right? I mean, there are big differences, like you know, in this case, you know, we're, we're the financier, so you know, it, it, so like you know, there there are structural differences. You know, tech works differently. There are other conflict issues, um, but you know, you can kind of get where the principle came from, basically, which yeah. is like it, the way I would describe it is like the attitude for both CA and for A16Z is is it's like it's it's us versus the world. Right, like you know, the, the you know, this is what we talk to founders about all the time. Is the the problem is probably not some other startup that you know about today, right, or some other thing, yeah. or somebody pivoting, or whatever, whatever. The problem is the world. Like the problem is like going out into the world and like having maximum impact as a new company and like punching through, right, yeah. and recruiting. You know, being able to recruit talent at scale and being able to go get customers and being able to have like you know these top end relationships with all these other CEOs and everything. And so it's 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 you know regulators like all, all you know the press, all these other things. Um, and so it, it, it's us against the world. And so basically the, you know, the bet, you know, kind of the whole time has been that if we kind of maximize our power to punch on behalf of the portfolio companies, um, then, then that's actually best for all the companies. And, and that's something that we, we very much kind of inherited from, from Michael. You know, I'd like, to also, I'd like to add one quick thing, Ali, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But Mark brought up a really good point. And I think it's important to preface this discussion. And I, I stand corrected, should have done it originally. You can't compare the nuts and bolts of CA to the nuts and bolts of Andreessen Horowitz because there's a lot of differences in the details, yet you can compare the basic ethos and thesis of both companies. And I was particularly inspired in that this idea could be transferred to a completely different silo. And I think it started when Mark and Ben went out to raise money, for example. I remember calling them with several suggestions of investors, and they handled how they took money like we would cast a movie. They wanted the right people on the cap table, people that would be supportive, people that were, were high on the reputation scale. It was all done very similar to the way we looked at things. Now, are the businesses the same? No, but do they have the same underlying value systems? I think so. So I think it's it's very much about a thought process and knowing where you wanna go and not being afraid to embrace change and not being afraid to want to have the whole pie. And in, in my opinion, I think that there's nothing wrong. I think in business, the idea of being competitive is a good thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I think if you, the idea is to win, it's not to lose. And assuming you do your social responsibility, which the firm has done, I think that the idea of wanting to win and have the right people all under one tent is a very, very positive thing to do. Yeah, I love that. The, the idea is to win. Um, but but in, in venture, it seems people actually only remember I mean, when they talk about mistakes, they, they remember the deals you didn't invest in, the deals that came your way and you didn't invest. You guys haven't told me which ones you've actually passed on, but I spent time on Crunchbase and looking like, what are the kind of big companies that came and went during this period where you guys were around? I didn't see you guys investing in Square, Twilio, DoorDash. I don't know if you had an opportunity. I'm curious, are there sort of deals like that that you passed on? that you learned anything from, you did post-mortem on, and you kind of change your reasoning process after those? 
or is it just it's just a probabilistic game? You win some, you lose some. That's just you know, we, everything is right on. I just want to start by saying I don't recognize any of those names. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you mean data so bricks, Coinbase? <laughs> so yeah. those are yeah, those, those names. Those names I recognize. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. Ben, ben, go ahead, please. Yeah. Yeah, no, like we, we learned a lot over the years. I mean, you know, neither Mark or, nor I actually had any kind of professional, like, venture capital investing experience when we started the firm. So you know, <laughs> there, there was a lot to learn. I, I, I would say the one, you know, what the most vivid uh, memory for me was Square. Um, and, you know, I, I think we changed a lot, not just for Mark and myself, but for the whole firm, um, because I do think we could have won that deal. Um, it was, it was, it would have been a fun one deal. It was, uh, we saw the A round, we knew Jack, um, from Twitter, uh, where, you know, Mark had been an angel investor in Twitter and I knew Jack and, um, you know, we liked everything about the company except for, uh, the CEO at the time. So the CEO at the time was a fellow, uh, by the name of Jim McElvey, um, and, you know, I just could not, you know, and, and remember, I, I was coming from being a CEO, and I just couldn't imagine this guy building a company. Like, I couldn't at all. Hmm. And so, you know, Mark and I went back and forth. And I would say that this one is definitely my fault that we passed. Um, and we passed uh, because Jim McAfee was the CEO. And, <laughs> you know, Jack fired Jim three months later and took over as CEO. And the thing that, you know, we learned from that, which we talk about almost daily in the firm is, look, we go with strengths, magnitude of strength, not lack of weakness. So the strength on Square, Jack Dorsey's new company with an amazing demo, that was enough. We should have just put our money in right then and there. And look, yes, it had weakness, but like big strengths deal with weaknesses. Um, and no weaknesses don't create outside strengths. And that's probably, you know, one of the most important investing lessons um, that I think not only that, that, that I've had, but that we've had as, a, as an organization. That's fascinating. And that's, this, you always say it, right? You say, you know, invest in strengths, hire for strength, look for strength. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can always, you get a bunch of smart people in the room, you can always nitpick to death and find flaws in anything. And you end up with mediocre stuff. Uh, that's well, like, kind of like great. Great people have great weaknesses, you know, and great companies have great weaknesses. Um, but you know, and, and mediocre companies sometimes have very, you know, little weaknesses. They're mediocre at all things. <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's a it's a further issue to consider, which I think the both firms did exceedingly well, which is that the leadership is not fearful of hiring great people and agreed that some have weaknesses, but all people have strengths and weaknesses. But when you hire great and you're not afraid to be replaced and you're not afraid of competition from people younger or smarter, it is, it just goes miles in the right direction. I hired people that I thought in some cases were better than me. I hired people on the idea that they could replace me. I hired people that I thought could get along with each other. 
And I hired people that were in the trench. So this is at, at, the, at Andreessen Horowitz, they originally started out, if I recall, of hiring only people with operations experience. I thought that was very smart because it's easier for someone who's been an entrepreneur or operated a business to be able to talk to people that are starting businesses or dealing with all of the trials and tribulations of something that's new. There are so many things to do. Mark once said to me, I called years ago to complain that an entrepreneur wasn't uh, you know, getting back to me. And he said, dude, you got to understand something. These guys have serious day jobs and they got, they don't, it's not enough time in the day. I could relate to that having started a business. I started our business when I was just turned 27 and there weren't enough hours in the day, six days a week, seven, seven days a week, 24 hours. It was nonstop. So if you have operating people or people that have been in that saddle, as Ben said, you're sitting there with the ability to be able to empathize and also organize and also assist in their build. Without that, I think the advice comes with a little less um, credibility. That's totally true. I mean, this is why I, you know, I frankly took money from uh, A16Z. You know, we felt like they're kind of like us. Uh, so that's totally true. All right, so I want to I want to turn to the relationship between you two guys, and I'm going to turn to my favorite quote. Uh, from Hard Thing About Hard Things. So this is uh, uh, back at Net Netscape when Microsoft was, there was Internet Explorer and you guys were in a difficult position and you had a counter plan that you were going to launch. And I think Mark leaked it to the press. And Ben, you sent this email to Mark saying, well, I, I guess we're not- I, 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 I would say it was a leak. He did a <laughs> no. full interview. Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. He okay. just did an it's interview. It's a full-on interview. Let me hey, quote no, it so people yeah, missed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He announced it. Right? I announced the entire thing right there in public. All right, yeah, I'll read it. He, yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't sneaky. It wasn't like he okay. was off the record snitching. He just like it, literally announced the fucking thing. He, he broadcast it. It was, a, it was a stab. It was a stab straight mm. to the chest. Yeah, so, exactly. All right. So Ben, you sent this email saying, uh, I guess we're not going to wait until the 5th to launch the strategy, Ben. 15 minutes later, Mark yeah. said, apparently you do not understand how serious the situation is. We are getting killed, killed, killed out there. Our current product is radically worse than the competition, and you're running product, Ben, right? And we had yeah. nothing to say for months. As a result, we've lost $3 billion in market capitalization. We are now in danger of losing our entire company, and it's all servant product management's fault. Again, you run PM, right? <laughs> next, time, next time, do the fucking interview yourself. Fuck you, Mark. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so my first question on this is, um, why do you think your partnership has been so successful, the two of you, over the so many, so many years and different businesses, startups, venture, and what can people learn from that? How, how, how can you build that kind of trust between two people? Well, let me, let me just start by saying I, I still send that exact kind of email to Ben. I just, <laughs> I, I just use the word darn. <laughs> so that, that's Makes my sense. big advance, and then Ben, ben can weigh in on the rest. <laughs> yeah, so you know, we didn't know each other as well when he sent that email. So, so it did make me a lot more nervous because Mark was the founder and CTO, and I actually needed that job. <laughs> I, I was I had three you kids and all, uh, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I just needed to be employed. Um, you know, like I, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, can you be honest with each other and learn from each other? Uh, and, you know, look, sometimes 
<laughs> sometimes, you know, Mark is wrong and I have to deal with it. And then sometimes I'm wrong and Mark has to deal with it. Uh, and, um, but I, I think the thing that's made the relationship work is in those cases. And when we argue about things, um, we we definitely hurt each other's feelings from time to time, but like we always learn, like I always learn from him and I think he learns from me. And if you can have a business relationship where 26 years in, you're still learning from each other, like that's very, very powerful. Um, Cause it's just, you, you know, I, I can't even imagine, you know, at this point in my career, you know, working without Mark because I would, I would miss out on all those things that I learned like, you know, day in, day out every week from these fights we have. Um, <laughs> because look, we, we, we both think we're pretty smart and have strong points of views about things. Um, and, you know, like over the years, uh, you know, we, we've learned <laughs> that, that, that we can be wrong. Uh, and look, sometimes, you know, like I've been right and we make a decision that Mark wants. And, um, and then a lot of times, you know, like with square, I think we made that decision that I wanted, you know, um, I think Mark probably would have gone the other way. Uh, and, you know, we learn from it and that's, that's the biggest thing. Let me ask you this. And that's awesome. What do you guys disagree on the most? I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one to Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see if that, see if you agree with this. So I think it's, I think it's when I think I have the concept right. Um, and maybe I do. And then you think it's the wrong people. Um, yeah. or vice versa. Um, uh, uh, you think you've got the right people and I think the concept is wrong. So it's yeah. like, it's like the, it's like the intersection of theory and practice, or it's like the intersection of kind of, you know, uh, concept and, and actual like team and people. Um, and, and by the way, this is true. Like this has been true actually for, you know, probably mistakes that we made inside the firm as well as, you know, investing mistakes we made. Does that sound about right? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think that um, the thing that we've actually gotten better at over the years, I think that that's exactly right, uh, is <laughs> we kind of go, okay, you're dug in. How do we get to the right people? Or, or how do we, um, you know, how do we make the adjustments so we can actually pursue the idea? And I think that's right. It's both on investments where like the investments that I don't like that you want to make are always, those aren't the guys. <laughs> yeah. Right. I totally believe in the idea, but like, those aren't the guys. And then same internally where it's like, we should definitely do it. We just can't do it like that. Um, and then we have to talk, but it's complicated because we have to talk enough so that, that at least there's enough urgency to go do that or go find that team or do, do the next thing that I think that's yep, a, that makes a lot of sense. Correct that's observation. Awesome. Yeah. Or, or also just like, or also, you know, the decision to do nothing, right. Like the decision to wait, yeah. which is, you yeah. know, which is, a, a, you know, for people who are action oriented, like a very difficult decision to make and requires, you know, a form of willpower all of its own. What you just, what everyone listening just witnessed is the definition of a great, great partnership. Partners that agree on everything are a disaster. Partners yeah. that take positions with each other 
that fight to the death on something they believe in just makes them sharper, makes the decisions better. There's nothing I can't stand more than yes people as partners for myself. And it's like when I call Mark or Ben about an opinion on something, whether it's professional or personal, I get it right between the eyes. And that's what I want. And that's what a great marriage in business means. It means you get the truth and you don't get BSed and you don't get manipulated. And if you are manipulated, it's okay if it's in the service of an argument for the company. But what you just witnessed, what everyone just heard, is why they work well together. Yeah, I mean, we could see it. And on that note, I have a question. Name one thing that the other guy is just way better than you at. The other guy, meaning Mark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I really think that Mark is, you know, you know, really not just better than me, but among like better than anybody in, that I've ever met and, and, you know, possibly in the world at synthesizing a tremendous amount of information um, that he can absorb. And part of it is like, he can just consume more information than anybody else, but about like what is likely to happen next. And that's, you know, that's, you mentioned COVID earlier. Um, you know, I remember when Mark first looked at it, he was like, oh, this will probably be nothing because he had seen all the other ones come before and had followed them closely. But then maybe a week later, he was like, oh, fuck, we're in trouble. And that was right in January, um, which was long before everybody else. But the fact that, um, you know, on something like that, a pandemic, which is is you know, it's just very hard to calculate because it's a, you know, it's a it's a tremendous amount of kind of bad uh, information that was coming at us at that time. If you remember, I mean, most of yeah. the articles were saying, you know, this is nothing. You know, the flu is far worse. Why are people even talking about it? And that was, you know, months after Mark had already said, no, this is going to be a problem. So, and and he didn't just jump to that. You know, he actually started on the other side. And then as more information came in, he was like, nope, I'm wrong. This thing's going to be bad. Uh, That's a good and, skill and to we've have. we've seen him do that with, with many, many, many things. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, that, this is why, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of how we work together. So um, Chris Dixon actually was the guy in the firm who kind of first got very interested in crypto. But Mark was the one who got the confidence that, okay, this is going to be really a thing. And then I was the one who said, like, let's just make the whole fucking firm an RIA right now and not even look back. And today, we're the only, you know, of all those top-tier venture capital firms, we're the only RIA. Uh, hmm. And that's, you know, that combination of things where, you know, we, we've got great people in the firm. We have Mark, who's so good at synthesizing all this information and getting confidence in a direction. And then, um, you know, between our, with our relationship, I can go like, I don't care how much of a fucking pain it has to be a regulated industry. Like if this is where it's going, this is where we're going. Um, and uh, and that, that's, a, I would say a good kind of example. But Let I, me I ask give this. it to Mark. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Well, you got to ask Mark what I'm better at. Yeah, name one thing that uh, Ben is just clearly better than you at. 
Yeah, so it's actually that exact last point that he made. So for, for people who don't know, like RIA, so RIA, so venture capital firms basically run without, you know, a, a, a lot of kind of regulatory oversight because um, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of very specific kinds of sort of these uh, accredited investors and, and then only investing in private stocks. And so in, in historically venture capital, <laughs> that's not because they like us. Like, it's just because like historically venture capital has been kind of a backwater. It just, it just hasn't been a systemically important kind of sector in the, in the, in the financial system. It doesn't, you know, create systemic risk and it's just not that big. Um, but as a consequence, like there are very real constraints on what a venture capital firm can do. And there's very like strict limits on like what you can invest in. And one, one of the things is like every fund has to be, you know, overwhelmingly majority invested in, you know, private equity and, and, and you know, C corporations. So this, this crypto thing comes along and to really commit to crypto and raise a crypto fund and to run integrated investment operation where you're you know investing interchangeably in, in, uh, you know, in company equity, but also in crypto tokens, right? It, it basically, it's like what all the lawyers will tell you is, well, you have to re-register your firm as, a, as an RIA. Uh, and what that means is you have to basically run the same way that, um, uh, that basically hedge funds run, right? So mm -hmm. under the same regulatory regime, you know, if, you, if, if you've seen billions, right, you, you need an RE Spiros. Like hmm. and and that's like the very beginning. Like you need a compliance function. You you operate under a completely different set of like disclosure rules. You have like all these limitations on your personal activity. You know, all of us as individuals are signed up to all these restrictions. We have to like pre-clear all you know basically financial transactions we do in our personal lives. Um, and then we have like a you know this whole set of limits on what we can do on the marketing side, which is a big deal for us because you know we're we're very we do a lot of marketing. Um, and so like it's a big structural organization organizational change with like serious implications um, for the organization. So it, it, so it's not something anybody does does lightly. Um, and so it, this goes exactly to I think where you know where Ben, ben, ben skills like re really jump out, which is it's this like, okay, you know, it's basically, okay, smart guy. Um, you've got this idea, <laughs> right? But like, how practically speaking are we actually going to be able to implement this idea in the context of an organization that's then going to that's then that then is going to function? Right, um, and how is that going to intersect? So, how is it going to intersect with how something is structured? How is it going to intersect with how something is organized? Right, and then really critically, like how is it going to affect the people? Right, and you know, and so like, so there's several parts of that. One is just like, okay, like can this be done? Like, you know, doing this kind of thing, like can we actually, practically speaking, can this organization do that, or is this the kind of thing that might just like blow the whole thing up? Right, and then it's like, okay, if we decide we can do it, then okay, like, what? How are we actually going to implement that? Like, what? What are the sequence of steps? What are the issues? Right? What are the constraints? Who do we need to, cons you know, how do we, need, you know, building buy-in? Right? You know, consulting with people inside the firm. How do we make the decision? And then, of course, you know, just as you know, Ali, like, well, like decision making any any large organization, like, it's never unanimous, right? And so it's like, how do you thread the needle between basically, like, you know, some people are in favor, other people aren't, and you still want to do it. Right, um, and then there's like all of the all the all the all the kind of you know personal level kind of issues that kind of flow from all this stuff, um, and so is this translation from concept to reality? Um, and, and I would also say like I think this is also this is this is the skill and capability that like really great CEOs have, um, you know, including you, including Michael, including Ben. That's just like least well understood for people on the outside. Because it's like, you know, on the outside, it, it all looks like it almost just be strategy, right? It's all just like, okay, we need to think about everything and then we make a decision. And that's kind of what happens. And like, you know, on the inside, you know, like, no, no, that's just the beginning. Um, and so I, I think that's that's what he's just like incredibly, you know, incredibly good at, at our firm. Operationalizing it, right? And executing on it yeah. and actually operating it. It's, you know, it's, it's one thing to have an idea. So, you know, so to go from theory to practice, it's kind of Mark starts with the theory and then it's put the practice and executed on and operated. Uh, through Ben, is that the good abstraction sort of understanding? Yeah, well, high I, level? but I guess I, I would also add like Ben is much better at theory than I am at practice. Um, <laughs> so I would say it's 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 I would say it's more lopsided than that, but uh, in my favor.
But look, <laughs> and Mark, and Mark, Mark has good practice ideas. So yeah, it's more overlapping is the way I would describe it. Like, it's not like I do this thing and he does that because it would never work because I would never understand what the fuck he's talking about if I didn't get all the concepts. Like, like I, <laughs> I mean, I read the Satoshi white paper like six times um, to make sure <laughs> that I understood everything about crypto and how it was working and all these kinds of things. Um, and Mark really, really does understand and take the time to like go through all the implications that it's going to mean to take a venture capital, like people who want to work in the venture capital industry and turn it into a fucking hedge fund overnight. Um, like that's a, <laughs> the, the overlap is what makes it work. I would just say. That's awesome. Uh, so we're at 6 PM. Uh, this has been awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everybody. I mean, Mike, it's awesome to hear how you built up CAA, how it influenced A16Z, hearing, you know, your vision of the future, guys, and how you work together. Super fascinating. Thank you, Ali. And a, a public thanks to Mark and Ben for being two of the best friends, personally and professionally, that anybody could ever hope to have. And, you know, thank you, Michael, for being the godfather of the firm and uh, <laughs> and giving us the idea that that actually that amazingly worked across industries. I mean, to have an idea that good that uh, you can do and then do again 30 year, 35 years later is just one of the most amazing things well, in a whole different you. industry. Yeah. Okay, awesome. well, thank you, Ali. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, thank you for Lisa for warming up the room and all our uh, early guests. Um, it's been great fun to talk about this. And Ben, I think next week uh, we're going to interview Opta CEO and Opt Zero CEO on the acquisition that they made and hear the perspective uh, of two uh, CEOs, right? No, that's on the 20th. 20th, okay. Um, yeah. All right, okay. You're right, actually, I got it wrong. Okay, so then stay tuned. We will have a boss talk <laughs> next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll see you then. Thank you, everybody. Yep. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks, guys.